Take a Bible this morning. Hunter read our passage earlier, John chapter 13. We're going to look at verse 31 to 38, so you want to have a copy of the scriptures handy. There are notes in the bulletin. You can track along with some of what we're going to talk about this morning. Last week, we looked at the story of Jesus washing the disciples' feet. We saw Jesus dismiss Judas to go and to do what Satan had put in his heart to do. And we talked about Jesus being troubled. He's thinking and he's talking about his death that is just hours away, and he's troubled as he thinks about his death. All of that is the beginning of what Bible scholars call the farewell discourse. Farewell discourse was delivered in the context of the Passover celebration. That's what they're doing on this night when they're eating together, and Jesus is washing their feet, and he's talking to them. Bible scholars argue and quibble about where exactly it begins and where exactly it ends, but for the most part, we're talking about John 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17. This is literally the last moments that Jesus is with his disciples, his closest friends, and he's saying goodbye. He's saying farewell, and so Bible scholars call it the farewell discourse. One detail that helps you make sense of what's going on in this passage, we talked about this last week, the detail comes from Luke. He gives us a little bit of insight, Luke twenty-two twenty-four, that on this night, the disciples are arguing about who is the greatest. And in hindsight, it's just a little bit shocking to think about the crassness of what they're arguing about. In just a few hours, Jesus will be in the Garden of Gethsemane on his face, praying, sweating drops of blood. He'll be betrayed by a close friend, Judas, arrested, beaten, crucified. And just hours before, as they sit down at this meal, the disciples are arguing. Who's the smartest? Who's the dumbest? Who's the most important? Who's the least important? Who's in charge? Who's going to just take orders? They're arguing about all of these sorts of things. And Jesus breaks into that argument, and he gives them an object lesson. He sort of silences the argument by washing their feet. And he says, just like I've done to you, you ought to serve each other. You shouldn't be arguing about who's the greatest or who's not the greatest. You should be worried about serving each other. He dismisses Judas from the room, and then he continues that lesson, right? He just picks up right where he's left off. He gave them a physical example of service in washing their feet, and now in this passage, he begins to talk to them about love. They ought to love each other. One of the things that you see beginning to develop here in John 13, and it goes all the way through the end of the Gospel of John, is a contrast between Judas and Peter. We're not going to spend a lot of time on this, but we're going to notice it over the next few weeks as we work our way through the end of John. John is describing a contrast between the sin of Judas and the sin of Peter. On the surface, there's some similarity. Judas is about to betray Jesus. Jesus knows it's about to happen, and he lets Judas know that he knows it's about to happen. Peter is about to deny Jesus, Jesus knows it's going to happen, and he lets Peter know that he knows it's about to happen. There's some surface-level similarities. There's also some important differences. I'll put a few of them up on the screen. The sin of Judas was premeditated. He's been thinking about this. He's been planning this. 
There's a purpose behind it. Peter's sin, not excusing his sin and denying Jesus, but it's, it's an impulsive sin. He didn't set out to commit this sin. The sin of Judas is decisive. There's no turning back after this sin. Peter's sin is temporary. There is a turning, and that's because Judas felt remorse after he sinned. The Bible says that. He felt remorseful. Peter was repentant after his sin. And we're going to see this contrast build and play out as we work our way through the end of John. There's a difference in these two men. They both sinned against Jesus in serious, serious ways, but these men are not the same. Their sin is not the same. That brings us uh, to this big idea. It's a pretty simple big idea. You think about this passage. Because God loved us and he sent Jesus to die for our sins, we are called to love one another. That's a big idea summary of what we're going to look at in verse 31 to 38 in John 13. Because God loved us and he sent Jesus to die for our sins, we are called to love each other. I just want to acknowledge one thing as we jump into this passage. These verses are kind of boring, at least on the surface. I mean, last week it's exciting when you think about Jesus washing feet and the drama of that moment, and Jesus is about to say some really important things about the Holy Spirit. Jesus is going to be betrayed. There's going to be some action towards the end of this gospel. These verses feel a little bit uh, dull. Jesus sends Judas out of the room, and they talk about love, and then we move on. It, it's almost like flyover country in the political world. You say, oh, this is a flyover passage. You could, you could miss this one pretty easily. It's kind of boring to us at first glance, but I think this was a momentous moment for the disciples. And if we can this morning, I just want to ask you to use some sanctified imagination. And I want you to try and put yourself in the room with the disciples in this moment when Jesus says, I'm leaving and you're not coming. I want you to try to put yourself in the position of the disciples and think about how that statement would have landed on you. It wouldn't have been a boring moment at all. So think with me just for a moment if you are one of the men left in this room. Three years earlier, give or take, you literally left normal life in the rearview mirror so that you could physically follow Jesus around. Jesus up in the north in Galilee, Jesus down in the south in Judea, he's moving back and forth between these areas in his ministry, and you are just following him around. Wherever he goes, you go. And if he's talking, you're listening. And if he's doing things, you're watching. You're learning from him. That's what it meant to be a disciple. You are following Jesus around from Galilee to Judea. You know at this point that Jesus is the Christ. You believe that. You don't have everything about Jesus figured out. He keeps saying things and doing things that sort of throw you for a loop. But Peter said what the group believed. You are the Christ. You're the promised Messiah. These men believe that. They believe rightly that Jesus will end up sitting on David's throne. They know that as they eat this meal, they're in Jerusalem, the city of David. They've heard the crowds shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, blessed is the son of David. And they're thinking, this is the guy. Maybe this is the time. 
These men know, if you're one of them sitting in this room, you know at this point after three years, Jesus can do anything that he wants to do. You have seen Jesus do remarkable, remarkable things. You've seen Jesus heal the sick, sometimes by touching them, sometimes by spitting in the mud and wiping it on their face, sometimes by speaking. You've seen Jesus walk on water. You've seen Jesus feed a crowd of thousands of people with a small lunch. You have seen Jesus do amazing things. Just a few days earlier, you saw Jesus call a dead man named Lazarus out of the tomb. You know he can do whatever he wants to do. You know Jesus is not scared of anybody. You know nothing scares him. He walked right into that cemetery where there were demoniacs breaking chains cutting themselves. Everyone in the village was terrified of these men. Jesus walked right up to these men, cast a legion of demons out of them into a herd of pigs who ran off the bank, and Jesus didn't blink at all. Not scared of anybody. Demoniacs or sword-wielding politicians in Jerusalem who have threatened to kill Jesus. Everyone knows it. They've made a plan. They're picking their moment. They're looking for their opportunity. They want Jesus dead. And he said, we're going to Jerusalem. He's not scared of these men. He can do whatever he wants to do. He's not scared of anybody. And everyone who argues with him ends up looking like a fool. That's what you believe about Jesus in this moment. It's taken you three years to get there. Now you're celebrating the Passover. It's the highlight of the Jewish year. Jesus looks at you over dinner after having washed your feet, and he says, I'm leaving. And in so many words, he says, you're not invited. I'm leaving, and you're not invited. We read that as flyover country, but for the disciples, that was a major piece of information. What do you mean you're leaving? It's just getting good. Think about all the things you've done, all the things you've said, all the things that have happened. We're here in Jerusalem. You're the Messiah. This is where David's throne is. Seems like a good time to us. And Jesus says, no, I'm going away. And you're going to stay because you're not coming with me. And when I'm gone, what I want you to do is love each other. The very people you've been arguing with about who's the greatest and who's the least and who's the smartest and who's not, who's in charge and who's going to take orders. Those are the people that I want you to love. That's a monumental moment for the disciples. And their heads are spinning trying to take it all in. They don't understand where in the world Jesus would go, and that's the problem. They think he's going somewhere in the world. They don't understand that he's leaving this world. So let's just step back from that moment. You've used some sanctified imagination. Let's just think about this question. Jesus is talking about love here. We're Christian people. Who is it that we are called to love? What does God expect when it comes to our love for other people? Certainly we we have to love God, but on an earthly level, Jesus says you ought to love your enemy, your neighbor, and other believers. You ought to love your enemies, You ought to love your neighbor. You ought to love other Christians. Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, 
You've heard it said, love your friends and hate your enemies. Jesus says that's completely wrong. What you really ought to do is love your enemies and pray for the people, even the ones who persecute you. Love those people. Jesus, the parable of the Good Samaritan. Someone says, Jesus, who is my neighbor and what's my obligation to him? And Jesus tells this story and he lays it out. And what he's saying in the parable is, you ought to love your neighbor. And your neighbor just isn't the guy and the gal who have an address number one higher or one lower than yours. It's anybody that God brings in contact with you and your life and your family and your church. It's a very big definition of who your neighbor is. Love your enemies. Love your neighbors. And in this passage, he says, love other believers. You look at that list. I thought about it this week, and I thought, I almost feel like I'm back in college studying for a semester exam. You ask you to use your imagination. Now I'm just asking you to use your memory. Go back to college. Go back to high school. Go back to the last time you had to take a really big test. I bet you can remember sitting in class, thinking about this test, hoping the teacher would tell you all of the questions on the test, right? That's what we want when we're taking a big test. I want the teacher to tell me every question that he or she's going to ask. Please tell me all the right answers. I'll memorize all of that. I'll regurgitate it on a piece of paper. And then I'll get a good grade, which is really what you're after in high school and college. You're really not looking to learn much of anything. You just want a grade, right? You want to pass. And so you want to know from this teacher exactly what's going to be on it, exactly what I need to answer. And you can remember every now and then you had a teacher who looked at you and said, I'm not going to do that. You said, but what questions are going to be on there? How am I supposed to study? And they looked at you and they said, well, is it in the textbook? then you need to know it. And you rolled your eyes and got mad. And then the teacher said, did we talk about it in class, in a lecture? Then you need to know it. Hope you were taking notes. You got madder. And then some of you even remember a teacher or two who just looked at you and said, I'm going to ask whatever I want to ask. If it's pertinent to the subject, you ought to know it. Read it, study it, listen to the lectures, take notes. I'm not going to give you specifics and spoon feed you. It's all on the test. What about this command to love? I think Jesus kind of splits the difference here. He gives us some specifics. Who are we supposed to love? Well, love your enemies. Love your neighbor. Love other Christians. When you understand what Jesus is actually saying in each of those passages, you come away realizing, he just told me to love everybody. Like it's everyone. You could have just said everyone. Love everyone. Your enemy, your neighbor, whoever God puts in your path, and other believers. That's the call for the Christian, is to be a loving person. It's not to limit our love for a specific group of people, but it's to be loving people ourselves. Now, in John 13, there's a unique emphasis doesn't mean those other commands to love your enemy and to love your neighbor don't count. It just means that's not the point Jesus is making here. The point he's making here very specifically is you should love other believers. The people in your Sunday school class. The people who are part of your church family, who worship at the same place you worship. 
other Christians that you work with or go to school with, other followers of Jesus. You are to love those people. And Jesus says something interesting about it here in John 13. He says, this is a new commandment. What does he mean when he says, this is a new commandment I'm giving you? For one thing, in Jesus, we have a new example of love. Notice what he said in verse 34. If your scriptures are open, look at verse 34. He said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. And up to that point, you say, yeah, yeah, I got it. The Bible says love each other. That's as old as Leviticus 19. Love each other. I get it. Jesus says, this is a new commandment. New commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. That's the standard that Jesus expects from believers, that we love each other the way that he loved us. How did he love us? It was a selfless love, selfless. He put us first and himself last. It was a sacrificial love. It was a love that certainly cost him something. Ultimately, it cost him his life. It was a consistent love. It wasn't contingent on how good we were, how nice we were, how lovable we we were. It was just a consistent love. And it was a gracious, forgiving love. It was a love that didn't trail off when we did something wrong or offended him or rebelled against him. It was a gracious love. Jesus says, just like I've loved you, you ought to love one another. There's a new example in Jesus about what it means to love others. And in a church, in the church, we have a new community to love. Up to this point, the church didn't exist. There were no churches. There were no Christians. But with the death and resurrection of Jesus, there is a new community of people formed. Men and women, boys and girls, who by God's grace are born again. They repent of their sin. They believe In Jesus, they are adopted into God's family, which is why Jesus, in verse 33, calls the disciples little children. He's not just taking a jab at them because they're acting like little children. He's subtly reminding them, you are children, and God has adopted you into his family. And everyone else who has been adopted into God's family is now your brother or your sister. There's a new community that Jesus is calling us to love. There's a new example of love. And the question we find ourselves asking at this point is, why? Why is this so important to Jesus? This question why gets to the heart of this passage. What is our motivation in keeping this new commandment to love other believers the way Jesus loved us? What motivates us here? Motivation is an important question in all areas of life. It's important if you're an employer or an employee to know what motivates my employer or what motivates my employees. It's an important question if you're in education. What motivates my students or what motivates my instructor? These are important things to understand. In the United States right now, it's helpful to think from time to time, what motivates a politician? What motivates those people? There's a lot of different things we could talk about. We could talk about one's faith. 
Our nation has talked about that as recently as this week. What motivates you? Is it your faith or is it your lack of faith? None of us are neutral in that sense. You're either a person of faith or you're not, and that motivates the way that you think and the decisions you make. Re-election, is that your greatest motivation? I'll say whatever I need to say, do whatever I need to do just so that I could be re-elected. Maybe it's money, fundraising. Maybe it's reputation or legacy. could be loyalty to a party. It could be uh, settling a political score, getting even. It might genuinely be love of neighbor that motivates some politicians. Lots of different things can motivate a politician. What is it that motivates a Christian when it comes to this command Just as I've loved you, you are to love one another. That's a command from Jesus. Presumably, he expects us to keep that command. What motivates us to keep this command? Three things. The first is the glory of Jesus. We're motivated by the glory of Jesus. Look at verse 31. Judas has been dismissed. John says that when he had gone out, that's Judas... Jesus Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, number one, and God is glorified, number two, in him. If God is glorified, number three, in him, God will also glorify, number four, in him, in himself, and number five, glorify him at once. Five times he uses the same word. Little children, yet a little while I'm with you, you will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I say also to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. As soon as Judas walks out, Jesus starts to talk about glory, people being glorified. At the end of the farewell discourse, he's going to circle back and talk about his glory and the Father's glory again. But he brings it up here towards the beginning. What is he talking about when he talks about glory? That's a church word. We use it all the time. We have sung it this morning in the songs that we have sang together. What does the word glory actually mean? The original Greek, the word is doxa. Doxa. Most basically, the glory of God is the excellence of His character. It's the sum total of His attributes. It's all that he is and all that he represents. That's God's glory. And you understand that the glory of God in that sense doesn't change. We can sing a million songs on Sunday morning. God's glory meter is not going up. We can stand in this room with our arms folded and refuse to sing. God's glory meter is not going down. God's character is firmly fixed and unchanging. He is glorious is a reality outside of us. There's also a sense in the New Testament when we talk about the word glory where we talk about worship. It's God's people acknowledging God's glory. We give Him glory. We recognize His glory. We're not giving Him anything He lacks. We're not filling anything up that's low in His character or His person. We're just acknowledging the truth about who He is. Make this mental connection as you think about John 13. Judas walks out of the room to betray Jesus. That will happen in a matter of moments. Jesus will be crucified. He immediately looks at the disciples. Five times he begins to talk about his glory and the Father's glory. 
And then in verse 33, he says, I'm going and you can't come. They don't know exactly what he's talking about, but you and I have read the end of the story and we know that he's talking about the cross. We know that he's talking about his death. Here's the point. The glory of Jesus and the glory of God the Father is intimately connected to the cross. If you want to know and understand and wrap your mind around the glory of God, you cannot do that unless you think about the cross. There are lots of people on this earth who believe in God and would say they want to understand and know his glory, but they don't believe in Jesus. Their faith does not center on the cross. And what John is telling us here is he records the words of Jesus is, if you don't understand the cross, you can't understand God's glory. Because it's at the cross where the excellence of God's character shines through most brightly. You see his righteousness and his holiness and his severity as the judge of the universe. And you see his grace and his mercy and his kindness and his patience and his love for his people. You see the full excellency of his character at the cross. If you want to live your life for God's glory, the cross has to be at the center of your faith. It won't do to have a vague notion of, well, there is a God and I want to honor him. You've got to be a Christ-centered Christian. A Christ-centered follower of Jesus. What Jesus did on the cross has to be the centerpiece of your life. It's connected to his glory. What motivates us to love each other? Number one, the glory of Jesus. Number two, the witness of the church. Our witness, our testimony as the people of God is tied to this idea that we're called to love each other. Look in the text. Look at verse 34. Jesus said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I've loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. You understand when you've used your imagination in this scene, you understand how important this statement was to the disciples. I mean, for three years... Everyone knew they were Jesus' disciples because they followed him like little baby ducks following a mama duck. That's how you knew they were Jesus' disciples. They're literally just walking wherever he walks. They're following him, following him around. And now Jesus says, I'm leaving and you're not coming. Well, how is anybody going to know that I'm a disciple? Is it because we're going to give a lot of money? Is it because we're going to vote a certain way? Is it because we're going to do this or we're going to do that? Jesus says, here's how they'll know that you follow me. It's when you have love for each other. That's how the world will know that you're a follower of Jesus. It's when you have love for his people. You know people and I know people who say, man, I love Jesus, but I'm not so big on the church, all that organized stuff. Jesus says, then you're, you're not a follower. You're not a follower. You don't love my people, you don't love your family, you're not a follower. This is how the world will know that you're a follower of Jesus. It's the love that you have for his people. In the last two or three weeks, I found myself talking with a number of pastors. Some of them here in Odessa, some of them in the area, some of them out of state. 
And many of these guys have told me stories about conflict in their church. Just painful, hurtful, frustrating conflict in their church. And some of it you look at and you say, well, maybe some of that's self-inflicted, a decision you made or didn't make. But for a lot of it, it's just deep-seated conflict in their congregation. I've talked to church members, not just pastors, but church members in the last couple of weeks. Some of them who go to churches in Odessa, some of them who go to churches in other cities, other states. And just in the last couple of weeks, multiple people telling me about conflict and fighting, bickering, and arguing, and divisions within their church family. Hurtful things that happen to people. It's made me thankful for our church to hear these stories. I feel for these pastors. I feel for these Christian people. It's made me thankful that we don't have to deal, I don't have to deal with some of the things that they're dealing with. But I do want to be honest with me and with you and with all of us. And I just want to point out the absence of conflict in a church is a good thing. It's better than conflict, but the absence of conflict in a church doesn't necessarily mean that Christian people are loving each other the way that Jesus loved us. You understand what I'm saying? You can have no conflict, you can have no fighting, no bickering, no arguing, no divisions. It doesn't necessarily mean that God's people are loving each other the way Jesus described here. In verse 35, Jesus does not say, by this all people will know that you're disciples when there's no fighting in your church. That would be to phrase it negatively. Jesus phrases it positively. And he says, by this all people will know that you're my disciples when you have love for each other. How are we supposed to love? Just like Jesus loved us. That's the new example that we have So what motivates us to keep this command? One, the glory of Jesus. Two, the witness of the church. Three, we circle back and talk about the cross of Christ. The cross. We're not going to read 36, 37, and 38. I just want you to see the dialogue here. So if your scriptures are open, look at these verses. Peter pipes up and he wants to know where Jesus is going. You're going. You're not inviting us. Where are you going? Jesus doesn't answer that question. He just says, you'll come later. You're not coming now, but you'll come later. And Peter chirps back like a classic two-year-old and says, why? I want to know why. Why are you going and we can't come? Why do we have to wait till later to figure it all out? Why is it going on like this? I don't like this. Why does it have to be this way? And Jesus doesn't answer that question either. He just looks at Peter and he says, Peter, you're going to deny me before the rooster crows. Peter popped off and said, why does it have to be this way? Jesus, I would be willing to die for you. In reality, you and I know that's not what's going to happen. In reality, Peter needs Jesus to die for him. The same is true for you and me. Jesus doesn't need us to do anything heroic for him. What we need is Jesus to do something heroic for us, and he did it at the cross. Be very careful in your heart and your life that you don't get this flipped upside down just like Peter did. 
Be very careful that you don't set out to serve God before you understand what Jesus did to serve you by giving his life for your sins. Be very careful that you don't set out thinking, I want to do something great for God before you put your faith in the great thing that God did for you in sending Jesus to die your death. Be very careful that you don't set out to love one another without first understanding that God's love for you was so great that he sent his son to die your death. Don't make the mistake that Peter made. Don't get bold and brash about you being willing to die for Jesus until you come to grips with the fact that Jesus died for you. Jesus did not come to this earth just to look us in the eyeball and say, hey, quit arguing, get along, love each other. That message had been delivered thousands of years earlier. You can find it in the book of Leviticus. I mentioned that earlier, Leviticus 19.18. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's an old message. Jesus came to do something different. He came to do something new. He didn't just come to tell us that we ought to love each other, but he came to show God's love for us by dying for us. That's the reason John wrote this book, that you would understand that and believe it you'd believe the truth about Jesus. John 20, verse 30 to 31. Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples. Some of these are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John is not asking us to go out and do something heroic. Most basically, he's asking us to believe in the hero. Jesus. He's not asking us to go out and turn the world upside down. He's just asking us to trust that God left heaven and walked on this earth to turn our lives upside down. When you believe the truth about Jesus, you have life. You move from death to life and you find motivation, true motivation for loving other believers.